The New Testament teaches that confession to one another is an avenue of intimacy and friendship with God and others. So why don't we practice it eagerly? Secrets buried deep inside of us, especially sinful ones, often become a source of toxic shame. This shame disconnects us from God, each other, and our purpose. If you have a secret, it's time to confess it so you can experience God's healing. In this podcast, originally delivered at the Pure Freedom Masterclass, Dana Gresh will motivate you to practice courageous vulnerability. I'm so excited about step number three. My, it is my passion. When Dana Gresh dies, you're going to get me a tombstone. Lexi, write this down. First thing, first thing is do not cremate me because I'm not sure what I think about that theologically. I want something for him to take up raise up. When I wake up, I want him to have this to work with, okay? So don't cremate me. Second thing is, if you could, no open casket. Just put a cute picture of me by the closed casket. That will also make me very happy. Preferably younger than I, well, hopefully, you know, I make it a long time. So, uh, you know, not too many wrinkles. And then the third thing is, on my tombstone, I was like, what would I want to be known for? I think it would be this. I would love to be known for being courageously vulnerable. That's what I want to be known for. That's the legacy I want to leave behind, that I was transparent and courageously vulnerable. But we're not easily courageously vulnerable. I did not learn to love being courageously vulnerable without going through a lot of hiding. And so I want to talk to you about the third step in freedom, which is confessing your sins to one another. We don't do that very naturally. I want to tell you about my sweet Robbie. I have three children, Robbie Gresh, Lexi Gresh, and Autumn Gresh. When my Robbie was small, um, he was very small. We called him little guy. He is now kind of built like a linebacker. Um, But when Robbie was about four or five years old, he came into the kitchen And he very calmly said, Mama, may I have a glass of water? And I said, sure, Robbie. And then I smelled something. It smelled like fire. And I thought to myself, I don't think I have time to give this child a glass of water. And I ran into the living room, and I found my my afghan, my blanket, on fire. And so quickly, I sprung into action, you know, and I pounded it out. I learned that whole thing from my dad. He was a volunteer fireman and pounded the thing out and looked back to find Robbie. And he was gone. Child was gone. He had made his way to his bedroom, shut the door, locked it tightly. Now, what is that? Robbie's, to this day, a relatively good person. And he was a relatively good preschooler. But when he did that thing with the candle, I mean, I had clearly lit, I lit a candle. I said, don't play with the candle. He disobeyed mom. He started a fire. And then he hid. Why do we do that? Why didn't he come around the corner and say, mom, help, help me? That's what he needed to do. And that's what we need to do. A lot of times we don't just have a little Afghan on fire. We have our whole house on fire, spiritually speaking. And we are not running into church and screaming, somebody help me. We're running to church and spending as much time as we can in the bathroom, hiding, 
And we've got to come out of hiding. We've got to confess our sins one another. Why do we hide? Shame. Shame is our strongest emotion. It is our strongest and most private emotion. It's the one we do not want to share with anyone. As we started in step one, following a trail of emotion to a lie we believe, I don't care which sticky emotion you have, which emotion you're struggling with, I can promise you it has a friend and its name is shame. Here's a definition of shame that I like a lot. Shame is pain caused by a consciousness of guilt. That type of shame is caused by sin. Or caused by a shortcoming. That kind of pain is caused by failure. Or that is caused by impropriety. That kind of shame is caused by innocent blunder. So the kind of shame that's caused by a consciousness of guilt is like what Robbie experienced. He knew he had disobeyed me. And he saw that it had caused a big problem, and he felt the pain of that guilt. It was caused by a sin. But there's also the shame that comes from a, a shortcoming or a failure. I've done three Kickstarter campaigns to help us fund our ministry for tween girls. And I cannot tell you which one I'm more worried about finishing and not having the money because we need the money to do the thing we're going to do, or finishing and not having the money because I'm going to be embarrassed. I think, if I'm honest, I'm really just worried about the failure and the embarrassment more than anything. I didn't do anything wrong, but sometimes our shortcomings, not being able to finish school or, or um, not being able to be something we dreamed we could be. Maybe you dreamed of being a pilot, but you, you couldn't pass the eye exam. And so your lifelong dream of being in the Air Force is crushed by a shortcoming, and you feel shame about it. But shame can also be caused by impropriety. That's an innocent blunder. You just don't even know what you're doing. Now, for those of you who've met my mom, she is the most stately woman she is um, well-behaved and mannered in everything she does. Um, she wears beige and white and brown and black and just is always put together. And so my mom had this moment. My, my parents have an international fireworks company, and they've done fireworks all over the world. They do the Super Bowl. They do the Eiffel Tower. They do Sydney Harbor Bridge, all the stuff, the princess weddings, stuff like that. And they were in Sydney. Um, my mom was at the mayor's dinner for New Year's Eve, seated with a bunch of you know, dignitaries and stuff. And my mom, she ate too much. And she, and she leaned back, feeling very full, and said, I'm stuffed. Now, that doesn't mean anything in the United States of America other than my stomach is full. I ate a lot. But there, it's like the Hiroshima bomb of all curse words. It's a very bad thing to say that. And so the entire table took a deep breath and went, <gasps> and then burst into laughter, impropriety. Now, my mom was old enough at the time not to be completely ashamed of it, um, but it, did it took her some time to start telling the story. It was like several months later that she said, I have a story, it's funny to tell you, but I haven't been able to tell it to you before because I've been embarrassed. What was that? What was that delay in being able to tell that funny story? It was shame. 
So shame is the pain caused by consciousness of guilt, shortcoming, or impropriety. Um, if I were to write a math equation for shame, and you don't ever want Dana to do math equations if they involve numbers. They should only involve words. I'm very allergic to numbers. Um, but if I were to do a math equation for shame, it would be failure plus fear equals shame. So failure in my moral life, sin, a shortcoming failure, or an innocent blunder, plus fear equals shame. So the pain is not caused just by our failures, but our fear, our fear that others will see the failure. You see, it's these two things together that equal shame. And here's the irony of it. The fear is usually about being disconnected from God and others. But because we fear that if they know our failures, they will disconnect from us, we distance ourselves and disconnect from them so that they won't see our failures and we're disconnected either way. How crazy is that? Our fears from being disconnected so we disconnect so we can't be disconnected? Are we nuts? We do it anyway. Shame makes us hide. I did it starting when I was 15 years old. My sexual sin caused me to hide. For 10 years, I didn't tell anyone. I withdrew from all of my positions of Christian ministry and leadership. I hid, like Rabbi hid when he lit my afghan on fire, like you hid when fill in the blank, like Adam and Eve hid way back in the garden. In fact, let's go back to the Garden of Eden. It's marked by the first hiding. One of the Bible verses that I find to be most remarkable about those first three chapters in Genesis is this from Genesis 2.25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Wouldn't you love to I would love to live in that world. To know what that world is like where shame does not exist. But then sin came and with it, shame entered our world. Now, what do we see Adam and Eve doing as soon as their eyes are wide open to their failure at the base of the tree, and they have the fear, they're afraid of what God is going to think or do or say when they find out. And so they hide. They had intimacy with God, and now they don't. They hide. Failure plus fear equals shame and the shame equals hiding. Now, I'd like to suggest an idea. They weren't just hiding from God, but each other. Now, we know they were hiding in the bushes or the trees or the leaves or something like that, right? We see that in the passage that they're hiding, and God can't see them haha, <laughs> as they hide. But why do they have the fig leaves on also? Is it possible they're hiding from each other? That the naked and unashamed intimacy that they had together is gone too. And so the fig leaves are to hide them from each other. Here's the thing. God comes looking for them. God comes looking for them in their shame. And listen to me. He is looking for you in your shame. You can't hide from him, and he doesn't want you to hide from him. What are you hiding from? Are you hiding Here's a good spot to posit an interesting thought that I think is only a Christian thought. I don't know that all shame is bad. I don't know that all shame is bad. One of the most watched TED Talks is about shame and vulnerability. 
And when it kind of entered onto the scene, I was overjoyed because I've been the transparency chick in, in, in my circle of the body of Christ. And I love transparency. It's a soapbox I will never fear to get on top of because I know that if you can tell your story, if you can tell your fears and your failures, you're going to be so much more powerful in the kingdom of God. And so as this TED Talk rose to fame, I was really excited about it. Books have been written since then. More TED Talks have been given since then. They call us out of our hiding and into authenticity. And I love that. So here's some of the research that we're learning as the secular world starts talking about vulnerability. First of all, research proves that we all experience shame. All of us. The only people who don't experience have brains that lack the ability for empathy and compassion and connection. They don't feel anything. They're called psychopaths. Literally, clinical term. Research proves that shame correlates to depression, anxiety, addiction, and unwellness. Research reveals that shame hinders the fullness of your life experience. You'll have a really hard time enjoying any relationships, any opportunities, or any purpose if shame is pervasive in your life, if it's allowed to have root, if it's allowed to grow. And research reveals that perfection is a form of shame. That's something that this perfectionist needed to hear. Perfection is a form of shame. Perfection, not letting others see your failures because you fear they will reject you. It's one of the greatest indicators that you're going to be disabled in terms of achievement. You see, those who've achieved the most were afraid of failure the least. Think about um, Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, right? And one of his famous quotes is, I didn't fail, this was while he was in process of trying to discover how to make light. I didn't fail, I found 10,000 ways not to create a light bulb. He wasn't afraid of the failure. Now he was exaggerating, he'd only found 3,000 ways not to create a light bulb at that point that he said that. But 3,000 times he failed, published his failings, people heard about his failings, he didn't care, he wasn't ashamed of it. He became a great inventor. And research reveals that vulnerability is the opposite of shame. That is, being emotionally exposed is the antithesis. But is it? This is where my discernment kicked in. And as much as I love the conversation we're having about vulnerability and transparency, I was like, is vulnerability really the antithesis of shame? So even though I'm a research geek and I love this stuff, I began to talk to God about, wow, Lord, this is really awesome. We're talking about shame and vulnerability and people are getting vulnerable and they're telling their stories and they're being set free. But why do I feel like that's not quite, the data is incomplete. I feel like the data is incomplete. What are we missing here? And so I began to, to just do some more research, this time using God's word to kind of follow this trail of discernment in me that something was missing. And I discovered two things. And the first thing that I discovered is this. I don't think that all shame is bad. It was altogether appropriate for Adam and Eve to feel the pain of disobeying God. That was good. That is appropriate. It was good for my son, Robbie, to feel the pain of starting the house on fire, or he might grow up to be an arsonist. You know, that was a good pain. It was for Robbie's protection that God gave him that. It was for Adam and Eve's protection that God gave them that. And um, our marriage counselor, Pete, you might really get tired of hearing from Pete. That's okay. He has a lot of good things to say, and I'm going to keep telling them to you. Pain is God's alarm system telling me something is wrong. 
It is a gift, a megaphone from God. Is shame painful? Yes. Is it useful? Also yes. The right kind of shame is also useful. So that got me thinking about the usefulness of shame. And um, I started to think, well, is there possibly good shame and bad shame, useful shame and some kind of other shame that's not so useful? And I think there is. I found two types of shame. I didn't invent these two types of shame. I'm just using God's word to help me understand the concept. And the first that I found is useful shame. Useful shame is the pain of the guilt as a result of my sin, which makes me aware of its presence in my life. It reveals the risk my sin causes to relationships with God and others. It draws me towards God and others in confession. It says, you did something bad. You did something bad. You did something bad. Now, you might say to me, well, Dana, is there any place in the Bible that God says shame is good? Yes, there are are several places. I'm just going to show you one. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church when he heard they were doubting the resurrection of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 34, he says, wake up from your drunken stupor. He's not playing here, is he? <laughs> the church is saying, I don't know about the resurrection of Christ. And he says, wake up. Are you drunk? Do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, but I say this to your shame. So he says, listen, you should be ashamed of what you're discussing and teaching right now. You should feel the pain of your guilt. What you're saying is heretical, and you should feel it in your spirit. Useful shame. In another passage in um, 1 Corinthians 6, 5, he corrected them for taking each other to court to settle disputes. He says the same thing. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? So he's using shame as a good tool to say, listen, your relationship with God is at stake, your relationship with each other is at stake, and your hearts and your souls are at stake. So I am hoping that God will give you some godly shame, some pain, so you can self-correct here. That's useful shame. But I also think, and this is what is pervasive in our church and our culture, that there's something called toxic shame, the pain that is unrelated to the presence of sin in my life. So it may be a result of sin, but it's shame that's remained long after my sin is confessed to God, or it's shame that exists because of a shortcoming or an impropriety that's not sin. So I shouldn't feel ashamed when I make a mistake, when I fail and it's not a sinful failure. This kind of shame pushes me away from others and God, and it says to my soul, you are something bad. Toxic shame sticks around, maybe after your sins are confessed and it keeps you at distance from God and others. Its root is unbelief. Maybe you still feel ashamed of an abortion that happened 30 years ago and you believe the gospel, you believe the Bible, you believe Jesus died and shed his blood, but you just don't believe it's big enough for that sin. You have an unbelief in the blood of Jesus to be able to erase and fix and heal that sin in your life. So you've told no one. The sin can't be erased because you haven't confessed it. You don't speak of it. It's empowered by the silence. So the toxic shame disconnects you from relationships with God and relationships with each other. Toxic shame also shows up when we fail because it's Satan's tool to prevent us from using the gifts God planted in us. The book of Ephesians says that God meant he designed you as a masterpiece to do good works planned long ago. 
before you were even born, before you were even conceived, God had good gifts that he designed and intended for you to use for this time and this earth. And you, because of some failures in your past, are living in this toxic shame that disconnects you from your gifts. You've just stopped trying to use them because it never works. Toxic shame shows up when we do something that's socially unacceptable and forget our worth in Christ for a hot minute. I remember I was maybe 16 years old and we, we rented a boat in Pittsburgh for my grandmother's 80th birthday. Great big two-story, you know, little dinner boat. And we were all up on the top enjoying the view and there weren't enough chairs. So I went down and I got a chair and I carried it up the steps, unaware of the fact that there was a rule by the captain of the ship that you weren't allowed to do that. Like you weren't allowed to carry those chairs up those precarious stairs. And he's standing at the top, the captain in his official hat and looking all, you know, and I don't remember what he said to me, but he scolded me in front of enough people that my 16 year old self went down the steps, sat in that chair for maybe two hours until somebody else came down. And then I just wiped my tears and pretended I was okay. But you know what? I didn't tell anybody about that experience until I was like 30. What was that? It's toxic shame. And it disconnects us from the joy of life. It disconnected me that day from that experience. And it probably got added to by Satan because that's how toxic shame is, disconnecting me from other experiences too. Here's the thing, what I want you to see. Toxic shame disconnects us. It disconnects us. It disconnects us from relationships, our gifts, and our life joy. And it disconnects us from our courage, our courage to do what God has assigned us to do. Now, you'll notice I'm using the word disconnects a lot, and that's because I found something really interesting as I was researching this. The neurobiology reveals that shame has a very troubling physiological impact on our brain, and it can only be described as disconnection in the brain. Let me describe this to you. So the brain is made up of six specific parts. There's the frontal lobe, the cerebellum, the deep limbic system, the post-central gyrus, the occipital lobe, and the temporal lobe. Now, God designed each of these parts of the brain to have their own function. We're going to dive into some of those parts of the brain as we continue our studies. The frontal lobe controls behavior, for example. It's the executive function. It says how we should, it's like the self-control part of the brain. The deep limbic system controls emotions. It tells us when we should be emotional and when we've responded to our emotions and we should shut off those emotions. But together they communicate. And the communication looks like on a brain scan, a functional image scan, like electrical impulses. And so these impulses occur and the parts of the brain communicate one to another. And they're also communicating with the body, different parts of the body. It's almost like the parts of the brain are having a board meeting and they're making decisions about how we should think, how we should feel, how we should act. And when we feel emotions like sadness or happy ones like peace, the brain fires up. Now we can see where the brain fires up on a functional image scan. And things like sadness and fear and anger and disgust, you'll see all these orange, yellow, or red dots. And those are where the brain is talking to itself. It's one part of the brain talking to another part of the brain. You can see in these images that they're definitely, those six parts are all communicating. 
You see how they're firing up in different regions. When we feel happy and peaceful emotions, generally, instead of looking hot, yellow, orange, and red, you'll see blue and green, cool colors, because those emotions, emotions like peace and happiness, are cool. So the brain fires in a different way. But here's what happens when we experience shame. Neurobiologists are exploring what can best be described as disconnection. Shame, which is usually accompanied by anger and fear and sadness and disgust or some cocktail or mixture of those things, you should see lots of red, lots of orange, lots of yellow. But when a person is existing in toxic shame, it's like the brain can't communicate. It's like the parts of the brain just stop talking. They're disconnected. That's the word that neurobiologists use. And that's what happens. Shame deactivates our brains. It deactivates our emotions. It deactivates our purpose. It deactivates our courage. Now, I didn't need brain scans or neurobiology to tell me that. My life experience told me that. Because for 10 years after I sinned sexually, I didn't tell anyone. I withdrew from relationships. I became less intimate. I withdrew from my purpose. I felt like I couldn't serve God on the front lines. I needed to, I don't know, bake cookies. And if God's called you to have the gift of hospitality and bake cookies, that's a good thing. But if he didn't, and you're especially bad at baking cookies, you shouldn't, which was what I was doing. It was a form of penance. Why? Because I was ashamed. So when I saw that there were some kinds of good shame. The second thing I said, okay, God, what is the solution? Because the world is telling us right now that vulnerability is the solution to shame. Is it? Is vulnerability, just telling you my story, the solution to shame? So I asked God, is that really the solution? And if it's not, will you show me a real solution? And here's the thing. I think it's an incomplete solution. I think it's a piece of the solution. You see, I've noticed this cycle in people that are experiencing shame, specifically as it relates to sin, but almost anything, that they'll be vulnerable and they'll tell someone, but it doesn't fix the problem. So they withdraw and they go to another person because they're so tired of the problem and they're vulnerable, but the sin keeps happening. So they withdraw because it doesn't fix the problem. And on and on, I call it the shame game. Because we really are trying to tell our stories and be vulnerable, but the vulnerability didn't fix the sin problem. Why? Because vulnerability is an incomplete solution. Here's what I think vulnerability is. I think vulnerability is a tool of confession that enables us to go after the root. And we follow the trail of this powerful and private emotion to the lie in the roots of our belief system and in that way, we're able to rip up the lie and then replace it with truth and nourish it. So what is the lie that most of us are believing? Well, depending on your lie, your emotion, your memories, everybody in this room is going to have a different kind of lie that they're trying to rip up. But generally, we also have this accompanying emotion of shame, toxic shame, let's call it. And the root is always something like this. The real me is not good enough to be loved and accepted. If you really saw who I was, what I am, what I've done, you couldn't really love me. So I've got to hide. Isn't that what happened to Eve at the base of the tree? I mean, she wasn't good enough, and maybe this apple 
Satan is saying, the serpent is saying, if I eat this apple, I will be like God. I will be good enough. She believed she wasn't good enough. It's one of our core lies. I struggle with it. You struggle with it. I'm not good enough. It comes out in different forms. I got to create a false me to be accepted. I've got to decorate up my life and look in a way that will please you to be accepted. And today, I kind of just want to invite you, especially as we go into our prayer sessions, to be the real you. Stop decorating your life. Stop wearing the fig leaves. Come naked. I promise you, you might feel the shame for a moment, but if you can come the real you, God's spirit can erase that. He can fix it. My life verse is Psalm 25, 14. This kind of tells the story of how God released me from my shame. I'm going to quote it to you in the King James NIV DKG, that's Dana K. Gresh version. Because it's one of those verses that if you put a lot of different versions of the Bible together, this one looks really different because it was very complex and difficult to translate. So the version I like goes like this. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he makes his covenant known to them. The secret of the Lord. What is that? Well, that's the place we get to live in and go to when we overcome toxic shame. Because the most literal translation would have been the people of God. But these people were described, and they were a people that were mask-free. Don't you just hate it that we treat our churches like country clubs? Does anybody else hate that? Is it just me? That we have to dress a certain way, act a certain way, vote a certain way? Come on. Are we a hospital or are we a country club? The secret of the Lord is a place where we come with our brokenness, and we come mask-free without the fig leaves. We share our hopes and our dreams and our failures and our sins because we know that that place of intimacy is safe. The opposite of the secret of the Lord is loneliness. And when we live in toxic shame and we withdraw and disconnect, we become very lonely. I'm not talking like lonely like, gee, I could use a day alone, like some moms would definitely say, hey, take the kids, please give me a day. I'm talking about you're in a room like this, and even right now as you're listening to my voice, you just feel like your particular stronghold or addiction or sin that nobody in here could possibly understand it. You're not that unique. It's a lie. When you hold on to that lie, you're going to feel lonely. You're going to feel disconnected from the secret of the Lord. My failure was my sexual sin, and I confessed it to God almost every day for 10 years. I would wake up, I would feel good in the morning, and then, you know, I'd hear birds singing, maybe sun coming in, except, you know, I live in central Pennsylvania, so not a lot of sun coming in the window. And then I'd be like, something's wrong. Oh, yeah, that. Every day. Some of you are nodding your heads. You know what I'm talking about, that sense of something. Oh, that's right. I have that secret. I have that shame. And I have to stand up again and carry it through this day. My fig leaves became performance, success, and workaholism, and I was lonely, so lonely. But this verse gives us a recipe to overcome that loneliness. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. Now, to fear him, that's a funny thing in the Bible, right? Because fearing God, why do you fear God? Like, I would, I would read those verses and I'd be like, but everything good is you, Jesus. Like, why would I fear you? And so, you know, I studied it. The word yara there is the word for fear. It means to stand in awe of, to submit to, to bow before, to worship. 
And I asked God to really kind of just help me understand that. So I had studied it. I still didn't get it. So I closed my eyes. I actually got down on my knees and I bowed because I wanted to do what the verse was saying. Lord, I bow before you. I submit to you. I worship you. Would you help me to understand how this secret of the Lord thing connects to the fear of God? And in my mind, he just, he drew a picture for me. And I was sitting there bowing, worshiping, but it wasn't God in front of me. It was people. It was the people in my life I was afraid of, that if they knew the real me, they would reject me. And I realized then that the opposite of the fear of God is the fear of man. Why didn't I tell my husband about my sexual sin until five years into our marriage? Because I was afraid he would reject me. Because my shame was too great. Why didn't I tell my mom who could have helped? Because I was afraid I would disappoint her. Why didn't I tell a friend, a girlfriend? Because I was afraid if she knew the real me, she wouldn't love me. Do you know what God finally gave me to give me the courage to be vulnerable? A daughter. Because as I was driving down the highway with my six-month-old baby daughter in the backseat um, listening to a radio show, I heard an interview and a man's voice say, what is the number one question on a teenage girl's mind when she's talking to her mom about sex? And without hesitation, a woman, I don't know who, answered, the number one question on her mind is, mom, did you wait? Hmm. I had been praying for that little girl since I was 19. I hadn't even met her dad yet. But I didn't want her to know the pain and the shame that I'd lived in for that decade. And you're telling me that the answer to that prayer that I've been praying for her is my healing? My baby made me vulnerable. She made me brave. The work that I wouldn't do for my own heart, I would do for hers. Any mama bears out there understand what I'm saying? So I confessed to Bob that night, that night, expecting him to reject me. It took me three hours in a dark bedroom to get one sentence of confession out. That's how much toxic shame had bound up my spirit. And Bob held me. Expecting rejection, instead I'm held. It felt like the arms of Jesus. And he said, honey, I don't know if I need to say this, but I think you need to hear it. I forgive you. It sounded a little bit like the voice of God. James 5.16 says, confess your sins one to another, and then you will be healed. Listen, forgiveness comes as we confess to God, but healing comes as we confess to each other. He made us for that purpose for each other. You cannot go on in your hiding and your toxic shame and expect that confessing it to God every morning is going to heal your heart. It will not. It doesn't work that way. That's not how God designed us. So the solution to shame is using vulnerability as a tool of confession so that you can plant the truth of grace. you got to choose. Am I going to live in this toxic shame or am I going to live in the truth of grace? Confession is kind of the act that kind of rips up the root of the lie of shame so that we can begin to plant truth. And here's the beautiful thing about it. The last phrase of that verse, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and then he will make his covenant known to them. You know what happened that night? Is not only was I instantly closer to Bob, 
but this supernatural instantaneous connection to God. My mom said, if I didn't know you had a saving relationship with Jesus before, I would think it just happened because I was that different. The vulnerability and the confession in my life was a significantly different thing. And it says that when we confess to one another that God's covenant is made known to us, that word known is actually a Hebrew word, yada, that talks about an intimate experience. And in some parts of the Old Testament, it talks about a sexual encounter between Adam and Eve, between Hannah and her husband and other places. So it's this intimacy with God, this being known that happens as we're vulnerable with each other. You can keep white knuckling your way through religion all you want. And what I define religion as is following all the rules without all the relationship. God created you for relationship with God and relationship with each other. And until you come into that with courageous vulnerability, you will never have the fullness of the gospel in your life. I'm not saying you won't be saved. I'm not saying you won't be in heaven. I'm not saying you won't have the eternal gift of life. I'm saying you're not going to have abundant life. You're not going to have the freedom that Jesus promised. So you've got to decide, am I going to fight on the side of toxic shame? and I'm going to hold on to this shame and hide my sin and use my fig leaves? Or am I going to fight on the side of grace? I'm going to be courageously vulnerable. You see, I decided a long time ago that I like the grace narrative a whole lot better. It's a whole lot harder, but it's a whole lot more fruitful and a whole lot less painful. We're good at covering up. It's easy. And what you're doing when you cover up and when you hide, I'm talking to pastors, I'm talking to Christian leaders, I'm talking to mature believers in this room, is you're telling the world that you don't really need the cross. You don't really need a savior. You're dressing up the mess you made for Calvary. We're good at that. The first grand cover-up happened in the Garden of Eden as Adam and Eve wore those fig leaves and they hid and some of us are still hiding. I want to end with this. In a book that my friends at Moody Publishers recently released called Marriage, It's Foundation, Theology, and Mission in a Changing World, John Clark and Marcus Peter Johnson wrote this. The second grand cover-up began many years later, east of Eden, and it continues today. It, too, was preceded by a shame-soaked nakedness. But this time, the nakedness belonged to God hanging on a Roman gibbet, exposed to public ridicule, awash in blood, sweat, and spit. God was doing the unthinkable, plumbing the depths of our sin all the way down. He took it to himself, our fallen nakedness, our sin-compromised sexuality, sanctifying and justifying our perversion in his death and resurrection. But even though God came naked for us, we seem to prefer him covered up, as if to insist that our sexuality was not a prime casualty of the fall, and therefore not in need of salvation. We cover up our Savior. Too ashamed and too modest to allow God to suffer our sexual sin and shame, we clothe Jesus on the cross. In the first cover-up, God graciously clothed us. In the second, Sadly, we return the favor. The irony ought to be revealing. Right at the point where we need God to both judge and redeem our unholy nakedness, we insist that he be clothed. 
Listen to me. Jesus does not need your help doing his work on the cross. Stop dressing up your sin. Stop dressing up the mess you made that put him there on that cross. Come vulnerable. Come courageous. Come naked. Because as long as you're hiding your sin, you're not really glorifying the work he's done on that cross. Confess your sins one to another, and then you will be healed. This message was presented at the Pure Freedom Masterclass. It is the third in a series of six entitled Pure Freedom Masterclass, Six Steps to Healing Series. Be sure to take time to apply what you've learned in this podcast before you move on to step number four. That means you need to find a godly brother or sister you can confide in. It's a difficult but exhilarating step in the process of freedom. You'll be ready for the next podcast after you complete that task. If you enjoy this series and want to dig in deeper, consider joining us at next year's Pure Freedom Masterclass. Learn more at danagresh.com backslash masterclass. This podcast was produced by Pure Freedom Ministries.